This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. It's too early to pinpoint exactly how a trader at UBS's investment bank was able to invest $2 billion in unauthorized deals. But it is clear this employee's allegedly shady trading was flying under UBS's fraud detection radar. From a risk management perspective, what lessons should the UBS laws teach other banking institutions about internal threats and fraud mitigation? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Francis McLeod, a partner and co-founder at UK-based Forensic Risk Alliance, a dispute analysis and litigation support company. Francis, we don't have all the details about the UBS trading scandal. What we do know is that the $2 billion losses associated with the bad deals will likely push UBS's third quarter earnings into the red. How could a trading loss of this magnitude have occurred? Well, I think we need to, um, in part, put this, and I would agree with you, it's, it's still early days, um, and we're not able to have the information on the time period over which these trades were um, exercised, the volumes and the values of it. So, obviously, we're a little bit in a world of conjecture. Um, but um, And also, to put it into the context of the fact that we've been undergoing a period of unprecedented market, market volatility, particularly with the movement from the euro, the uncertainty surrounding the Greek and Italian economies, and other factors, um, which obviously, when you get very volatile markets, um, issues of this nature um, tend to get thrown up. Um, so it's a question of, unfortunately, it would appear that the market volatility would be one of the things that, that allowed this to be detected. Um, I think it seems to me um, quite a similar case to the um, uh, Leeson um, case, which affected Bering so much, um, which is when you have an individual who has come out of the back office into the front office trading, um, which if that individual is um, susceptible um, to fraud or undertaking fraud, they really have quite a, a nice opportunity because they have a very good understanding um, of how bookings and allocations work. They understand um, the technical background, and it puts them in a, in a unique position to know how to circumvent the system when they move to the front office and start executing trades. And it would appear that the, the individual at UBS fell into that category. Um, and he had that technical background, which would allow him to know exactly what to do to circumvent the systems. So at this point, it's too early to say, to say whether um, this was somebody who was very, very skilled at doing that. And even if the systems in place should have thrown up anomalies, that he was able to circumvent that. Um, it, but that is certainly one, one area one could speculate about. And that's a good point. I was actually going to draw a parallel between what we saw at UBS and the Society General case, but maybe I'm drawing a parallel that doesn't make sense there. When we talk about the SOCGEN case, we do know that SOCGEN, for its part, had certain policies and procedures in place, um, but the bank was not enforcing those policies and procedures. We don't know if that was the case, of course, with UBS, though it seems likely that the bank would have picked up on some of these bad deals had fraud detection been followed. It sounds like, though, there may have been a number of things going on. I don't know what your thoughts are there. Yes, I, I, I think that's it. there is an interesting point. I think, you know, post the Sockjourn case, I think there was a, a deal of introspection across the banks um, and similar banks, because obviously clearly there are some banks which are sustained for their incredibly robust uh, compliance and systems and controls like Goldman. But I think, you know, UBS and, and SOCGEN are sort of parallel, quite similar entities in, in terms of their size, in terms of their international reach, and in terms of the variety of uh, services they offer. So I think it is a good parallel. 
Um, and I think in the case of UBS, I mean, post its own subprime debacle and loss it suffered due to that, I think there was a lot of introspection and a lot of examination of systems and how those systems had failed. And um, really, um, a beefing up is my understanding of controls and compliance within UBS. Um, I think one of the problems is that um, controls and compliance um, uh, pick up problems, um, but again, uh, they can always pick up when uh, anomalous activity goes on, and you're only as good as your ability to pursue those anomalies and work out whether they're one-off things, whether somebody is systematically circumventing your system. Um, one of the other areas, which is kind of like the pressure that was uniquely high within in banking, particularly in the trading side of banking, is there is conflict between the front office and the back office and between the risk management function and those who are looking at growing revenue. Um, and because so many incentives are geared towards, you know, boosting news and, and making money, there's often a perception that the risk management function is there to stop you from doing that. So I think there is there is a little bit of conflict in, in the cultures there, and I think that also is reflected in the way that people are incentivized. Um, and when I look at, at, at other industries that have had to go through, you know, huge makeovers in terms of compliance, so for example, you know, obviously not in, in the same area, but if you look at an industry sector like oil and gas, which has been um, susceptible to a lot of enforcement, both um, environmentally but also in terms of corruption and so on, um, the way they have addressed that to a large degree and created a much more compliant culture is to link incentivization towards actually being following the rules and being compliant. And that now, you know, there's increasingly a trend to look uh, bonuses and compensation to also being able to demonstrate that you're following the rules. And I think that that's something um, in the wake of these types of, of scandals that banks are going to have to really look at um, and not just the, allow these kind of star traders who have great results to, 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 to continue to, to make money without questioning whether they're really doing so in a compliant fashion and whether they're doing so in a way that is um, keeping an eye out on the risks associated with that. Yeah, that's a great point. And one of my questions actually delves into that a little bit. It seems that someone within the institution must have noticed that something was going on that, you know, perhaps was shady, but they said nothing. How can banks address this internal apathy? Are investment houses doing enough to encourage and support whistleblowing, for instance? I think, again, I think that's a, that's a very, very good point to really push that compliance down the food chain. Uh, because I think if it's only there as a book box ticking exercise, uh, people are going to circumvent that. Um, and I think by doing more random testing, I think by having people really who are trained um, to, to really look at, because I, to my mind, there are a lot of very sophisticated systems already in place in terms of the size and sophistication of the yes, it's a question of having those people in the management function having sufficient understanding to spot when there are issues and anomalies and really understand how the reports that are generated out of that system work rather than just that, leaving that just to the risk management and compliance function. I think it's a question of making the responsibility for that broader uh, and, and making it really institutionalized. And I think it's interesting to see that invariably in these cases, when you do have that rogue trader, it's very much been the trend to pursue that individual rather than enforcement spread a little wider in the way that, for example, it's been done in um, corruption cases. And you also talked a little bit about, in the UBS case, you may have had an employee who, who knew things that allowed him to take advantage of the situation. And I'm wondering if institutions are doing enough when it comes to the segregation of employee duties 
Um, do you think that more segregation would have made a difference in the UBS case? I think so, although, to be honest, I think you're always, you know, you're always going to be at a risk, risk in any institution of having somebody who's going to inside information that will allow them to circumvent um, a system. And you, you frankly expect your compliance systems and your controls to pick up problems. It's really a question of what you do and whether you understand how wide-reaching those problems are and what kind of remediation you take. And I think it has to be viewed also as an ongoing process with the question of constantly testing and shoring up um, the, the avenues for abuse. It needs to be a culture-wide compliance um, culture. Whether there was something you know, in this individual's background or character that should have raised alarm bells and um, he should have been spotted as a risk, whether one should consider the risk associated with moving people who have knowledge that could allow them to circumvent the system into another function. Know that there are thousands of people um, trading every day, but I think you do need to be aware that people making that move do have a level of knowledge, um, technical um, and accounting, which could put them in a position where they could abuse the system. And therefore, maybe it's worth keeping an eye on them a little more closely. That's a good point. You've probably answered this question, although I would like for you to expand on it a bit. I wanted to ask in closing, Francis, what steps should investment banks be taking to ensure they catch and prevent these kinds of unauthorized deals in the future? And it sounds like, from what you're saying, that it just needs to be more of a holistic understanding from management all the way down to the fraud detection department, for instance. Everyone needs to be involved. I, I think it can't just be uh, entirely driven by hitting your numbers or exceeding your numbers. It's got to be also ensuring that you know you in a management position are comfortable that the people below you are um, acting in a compliant and ethical fashion. And then I think it's a question of testing. I think it's a question of setting up systems that you kick the tires on periodically, uh, because you know um, in any type of fraud there are always new tricks of the trade that are coming up. And um, if you close off one avenue, uh, there are certain types of people who will find another avenue. And you just need to keep testing your systems, examining those reports, tweaking things um, to ensure that you are keeping up with the times and you are closing down those avenues. Francis, I want to thank you again for your time today. You're very welcome. Again, we've just heard from Francis McLeod of Forensic Risk Alliance. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitt. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.